This episode of Industry Focus was pre-recorded on October 4th. Some things have changed, especially oil prices, since this episode was recorded. Make sure to tune in next week, where Jason Hall and I will break down where we went wrong back in October, and we'll go to the Industry Focus mailbag to answer any questions you have in energy and industrials for 2019. To make that possible, we need your questions. To send those in, please reach out to us on Twitter, at MFIndustryFocus, or via email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. You can also send questions to Jason on Twitter, at TMFVelvetHammer, or you can reach me on Twitter, at NWSGator. We hope you enjoy our conversation on energy trends to watch in 2019, and we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, and we're discussing energy trends for 2019. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined in studio by Motley Fool contributors Jason Hall, Tyler Crow, and Matt DeLallo. Uh, for our listeners, th- this episode was recorded on October 4th. Things may have changed uh, between then and uh, when you are listening today. All right, everybody. Uh, the Fool.com uh, Writers Conference is in town this week, so we've got three of our contributors here today. We're talking about the 2019 oil trends. Happy to have you all here. Glad to be here. It's yeah. nice to, you know, we always tend to work on different parts of the country, different parts of the world, and getting all together and talk shops kind of fun. Don't get to do it that often. Yeah, it's 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 strange because of the fact that we do we talk literally every single day through Slack. We have a, a Slack um, like a group chat, I guess you could call it, and we actually get a lot of articles and content that comes out of our conversations. But being in the same room, it's like it's 2018 or something. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, we're taking this conversation from Slack to the streets, you might say. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so we're going to talk about the 2019 oil trend, uh, trends, or just trends across the energy market for 2019. And one of the biggest things that's been discussed, we've seen in articles, you know, over the past few months, is you know, hundred dollar oil. Is oil going to get back to hundred dollars? We've really seen the price move up significantly um, just over the past 12 months. You know, we were talking about before the show that the the Brent uh, crude price is now over eighty dollars. We're looking at about seventy five dollars on the WTI crude metric. So. First off, can you talk about how we got here? How, how does oil, kind of the price has risen over the past you know, year or so? And then after that, what needs to happen for oil to move from here up to that $100 level? Well, I'll take the, I'll take the how we got here, um, and then I'll let you guys speculate on how we can get there uh, part. But I, I think to understand how we got to where we are today, you kind of have to look back to probably 2013, 2014. Uh, Everyone was spending boatloads of money on new projects. Uh, a lot of new oil was coming on, and all of a sudden, shale was just this phenomenon that was growing by leaps and bounds at unprecedented rates across the United States, especially. And what ended up happening was, is all of a sudden, we realized we had way too much supply. Mm-hmm. And as we had too much supply, people slashed their budgets to the bone. There was, there wasn't a lot of new. Uh, new oil production that was set to come online. People were trying to juice a little bit more out of existing sources. They were uh, backing away from a lot of their projects. And what ended up happening is that when we had, as those uh, completed projects went to work, uh, we weren't replacing well, the decline in production in other sources. And as that has happened, uh, we've brought the supply, uh, supply and demand aspect back into balance. And now we're looking that we're starting to think that we might have a supply deficit because in, when we should have been investing for today and probably the next two or three years, we weren't. And now we've got this like gap of not enough supply coming online for a set amount of time. But this, this isn't anything that's really new or unique to this cycle. This, is, this happens every time there's a, a cycle like this where 
oil prices get really high, there's lots of free money and money gets spent. And then oil prices crash for whatever reason, and there's significant underinvestment in production or development of, of new resources. Guess what? It gets tight again and prices go back up. So, you know, we're just it's another it's another version. This one's been different because you maybe you want to Matt, you want to talk a little bit about shale, kind of why you think that that's where the investment dollars have gone. Well, there's the shale aspect of it, but there's also a lot of um, geopolitical things that are happening that are kind of messing with the oil. You've got the Iran sanctions um, that could take you know a couple million barrels of oil off the market. You've got Venezuela that's in free fall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've lost like a million barrels over you know past couple of years. You know, so you're not investing in places like that. And then um, you know shales having problems with uh, pipelines and the Permian, like they're capped out. They can't. You know, do too much more until there's some um, rail coming in, and then some pipelines, and then Canada they don't have enough pipeline too. So, mm-hmm. you, like we've shut off some of the valves that we could have opened up to kind of fill in the market. Right. And you know, that's when if something bad happens, a terrorist attack somewhere, or you know, a coup, um, then you could have hundred dollar oil pretty easily. Yeah, the, the geopolitical tensions have definitely been uh, significant. I, you know, we talk about you know. The, the high prices of oil, but not every producer is enjoying these high prices. We mentioned shale. Uh, you know, in August, uh, a lot of producers in the Permian were getting seventeen dollars or more below the benchmark price because of the takeaway constraints. So we talked about the, uh, the lack of pipeline capacity, uh, and that's really significantly uh, driving down those prices that they they can uh, they can command um, at the well. Because if you're going to transport um, oil by truck or some other method, that's going to cost Double, triple, quadruple the amount that it, it costs to uh, to transmit oil via pipeline. So, over the next eighteen months, say, what are we expecting? How are we expecting these shale takeaway issues to be resolved? You know, is the Permian going to bring these these pipelines online, or alternatively, are we going to see some other uh, uh, basins really getting getting those investment dollars that have been to date going to the primarily to the Permian? I think it's yes to both. I think in the Permian. Um, uh, Plains All American. They've got two pipelines. One's coming online, I think, next month, and then another. Like they're fast tracking it. They're spending more money to try to get generators and try to get um, supplies in as quickly as possible. Then you've got the Gray Oak pipeline, which is um, Plain or um, uh, Phillips sixty six partners, and um, you know they're that one should come online by the end of next year. There's a private equity back, back pipeline that they're hoping to build. Um, you know, the, they've tried to get around the tariffs. Like that's been an issue. Like it's costing more because of the steel tariffs. Um, but uh, you know, so in the meantime, we're seeing producers like move out of the Permian. Um, Con- ConocoPhillips, they've been like going to the Eagleford, and um, a couple others have said that they're going to switch out. So there could, there you know, you're going to see more supplies coming from the Eagleford, um, the Bakken, Permian, uh, Potter River Basin, places like that. It seems like. Uh- Probably by the time that we're recording this and the time that it, this podcast actually drops, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw five new uh, pipeline uh, open seasons basically saying like, hey, we want to build a new pipeline somewhere because it seems like once a week we're getting a new pipeline like auction or somebody saying they're interested. And in it. it's it's amazing to see how fast uh, the infrastructure ramp up is going to go right now. And you're seeing it with those midstream producers. A lot of them are not committing to these huge uh, distribution increases and like paying out their uh, shareholders because they're like, we are going to spend a ton of money over the next 24 months, maybe even longer. And they're kind of measuring their uh, 
their growth to investors because they have to allocate so much money to construction right now. Yeah, and kind of follow up on that, you know, looking at the, these, you know, midstream companies investing heavily to build off these pipelines, is now a time to maybe get involved in those businesses? What is the kind of the risk reward here with, with the amount of capex these these businesses are, are putting in place to meet this demand? Uh, you know, I think it's it's I, it's pretty easy to say. I think it's a healthier time to be looking at that segment now than it was, you know, a couple of years ago, when you know, kind of the prior peak when tons of money was getting thrown and we saw a lot of the the midstreamers because I mean the, the idea generally is those are those are yield investments where you're you're getting you're trying to capture dividend income and a number of them had to slash their payouts substantially uh, because they got over leveraged and and so I think it's generally healthier right now. Um, I think you, you have to be kind of picky though. I think you know a few that I personally like I like Philip 66 partners because it's partnered with a, a great powerful midstream company that's also a big refiner. So there's some baked in interest in them doing it the right way. Um, I'm a big fan of, of One Oak um, as well. And there's a few others. I think I think we could probably have an argument about Kinder Morgan um, that might <laughs> we, get a little emotional. We don't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that. Okay, uh, let's swing into something else that's affected by pipeline capacity. That, that's the liquefied natural gas market. It's something that's really been been growing over the past few years. It's been promised to be much larger than it has been to date, but there are some signs uh, that it might be starting to scale up. So recently, uh, Shell announced a $14 billion LNG project in Canada, uh, the final investment decision for that, that project. It had been uh, originally announced back in 2012, but finally, we're seeing that project come online. Are investments like these sign of a lo- signs of a little bit of an inflection point in this LNG market? Where are we expecting this market to go over the next 18 to 24 months? I think it's just a sign that the oversupply that people thought we were going to have never really materialized to the level that it they were predicting. Uh, if you look back and you know read a, a energy article back in 2015, 2016, when it was, uh, I think it was. Australia, uh, Chevron's Gorgon LNG mm-hmm. project. They thought there was this was this monster that was going to completely change the way that we talk about LNG, and it was going to. We were between that and like Gulf LNG uh, facilities coming online. We were going to have an oversupply for years, and it hasn't really materialized because demand has picked up almost as quickly as that supply has been coming online to the point where prices for uh, LNG. Uh, in on spot markets in places like uh, in China or most of the Southeast Asian markets, it, they're at four or five year highs. And so all of those concerns about uh, oversupply haven't materialized in a way that they thought. And so you're seeing a lot of these companies like Shell give the green light to these projects because uh, instead of thinking, oh, there might be a market opportunity past 2025, they're seeing it as, wow, there we could have an opportunity 24, 36 months from now. Well, I think one of the things we talked about briefly before the show was how Europe is has relied on Russia so much for for natural gas, and how the the leaders are looking to diversify, you know, their supply. And so that's generally going to be a really good thing for for a lot of this a lot of this LNG. Yeah, and it, let's tie in a little bit. We talked about Europe. One of the largest markets uh, for LNG demand in the world is China, and. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, September 24th, China announced the latest round of tariffs uh, on the United States, and that included a 10% tariff on LNG. Uh, you know, we talked about maybe there's some demand coming up in, in Europe that wasn't previously there for these North American producers. But how do you think these Chinese tariffs are going to affect the global LNG market, in particular, those producers based in the United States and North America? 
I think they're just going to use a foreign proxy to buy it from the U.S. and then just buy it from that country. <laughs> yeah, um, it, even if it, those direct cargos don't go to China, they'll just get absorbed. It's one of those things where demand for the product seems to be so high that uh, if China decides to buy from somebody else, then the the shortage that is going to, I don't know, Vietnam or the Philippines or whatever other country is going to absorb that because – you know, China has been a huge growth market, but it's not the only growth market. You're seeing large uptake in LNG in South America. You're seeing it in the other Southeast Asian countries, places, uh, for example, like Japan, where they're trying to move away from their nuclear plants and yep. not use coal. So you have – there are other places for it to go. So for us to be wholly concerned about the one country, I think, kind of misses the whole global opportunity there. Yeah, I think it's bigger than energy too. It's also, a, you know, a petrochemical – manufacturing, you know, it's, it's a big feedstock too. And as oil prices continue to climb, uh, it, it makes it more competitive for, for petrochemical manufacturing too. And there's also India. We haven't really talked about that, but Good I saw point. that um, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, they're buying an Indian pipeline system um, that feeds in from LNG places. And they're, they're looking at India being this huge, huge natural gas market coming up. So, you know, China will be huge, but India is going to be right up there with them as far as natural gas in the future. Yeah, Tyler, you had mentioned a couple companies that you found interesting in this space. I mean, specifically uh, Tellurian and Next Decade. Do you want to talk a little bit about those and kind of how those players fit into the LNG story? Sure. I I kind of look for those as like the um, the all or nothing kind of bets. These are two startup companies in the United States who want to build. Uh, they're I, I get kind of similar to Chenier Energy. They're a company that is built on a business plan and a hope right now, uh, and if things were to materialize like we've been talking about here with you know supply being a little bit short and prices are really high, there is an opportunity with these startup companies. I think uh, through the development process, there's a lot of money to be made because I think um, you're, you're so getting so early on. It's one of the very few like startup kind of realms that you get in energy nowadays. They're, they're, uh, they're priced as if they're not going to make it. And so I think if somebody who is very bullish on the industry, especially over the next like year or so, when we're going to see some catalysts for those guys, when they're going to make their final investment decisions, when we're going to see them uh, present their customers, if those things can materialize over the next year, I think there's a great opportunity for investors in those two particular companies. Yeah. Sure, Tyler. And just for investors who may not be super familiar with the space, can you talk about specifically what Tellurian and Next Decade do? What are the services they provide for their customers? Sure. So if anybody uh, has followed the energy market recently, you have a company, Chenier Energy. They own a LNG export facility. Uh, Tellurian and Next Decade are looking to do the same thing. They want to build uh, liquefaction and export facilities on the Texas Gulf, Corps, Gulf Coast, accompanied with pipelines to places like the, the Permian Basin, uh, the Woodford, uh, not Woodford, sorry. The Haynesville. The Haynesville Formation up in uh, Louisiana. And basically, all these producers that need pipeline access, it's like, we're going to give you pipeline access to our facilities where we can liquefy and market to somewhere outside the United States where prices are much, much higher than uh, in the U.S. And the opportunity there is to... Uh, take really cheap gas in the United States, liquefy it, and transport that long distance, there is still a lot of um, money to be made on that trade. And that's where that opportunity is with those two companies. Tyler, one thing I'd like 
for you to describe is the way they're funding the business for Tellurian. That's the thing that's really different about Chenier, for example. Right. right? So uh, the unique thing with Tellurian uh, versus Chenier, who basically took on debt and did a lot of other creative financial things, Tellurian is actually taking their customers and saying, instead of buying it on a contract, you're going to buy an equity stake in the business. And so by it's kind of a you know equity dilution in sort of a way where the customers are going to own probably like I think it's 40 something odd percent of the facility I don't don't quote me on that I need to go back and actually look at it and by doing that you're going to avoid a lot of the high debt levels that we saw with somebody like Chenier. sure and I just want to call one thing out too for just for investors and listeners and that when you talk about you talked about how cheap gas is in the United States I mean our natural gas supplies are unfathomably large. We have something in in the realm of the United States. You may have some stats on that, Tyler, but I want to say something like 100 years worth yeah. of natural gas supply between shale and our other production. So, I mean, over the long term, that is going to be a major exporting good for the United States, especially as LNG demand rises. Yeah, well, there's just so much of it coming from places like the Marcellus and the Utica. And then um, we've been talking about the associated gas, which is coming out of the Permian. You know, they're, they're drilling for oil, but this gas is coming. And they're basically giving it away. And they're, they're building, uh, Kinder Morgan's built, or is building two pipelines just to move all this to the Gulf Coast because it's just so cheap, you know. And, um, you know, it's also coming from the, the Bakken. Uh, there's pipelines that One Oak is building. It's just incredible the amount of gas that we've got, and they're just trying to figure out how to use it. Even even for us who cover this, it's still kind of staggering to see the the amount of money that's being invested in either export facilities for oil or gas, as well as the uh, manufacturing petrochemical or and otherwise that's going into the Gulf Coast Gulf Coast over the past several years to take advantage of this cheap feedstock. It's, it, to me, it seems unprecedented. I, I haven't looked at it in a few months, but um, the last I remember seeing, like $180 billion had been committed to petrochemical manufacturing projects in, on, the, on the Gulf Cor- Gulf Coast. I think we both keep trying to say golf course when we're trying to say Gulf Coast. <laughs> Maybe we just want to get some golf in before, yeah. the, before we uh, be. head out of town. Could be. So the, I think the interesting thing about, about, about that, it's, again, it's tied to the fact that there's all this cheap gas. But in terms of the economic boost of those areas, create thousands and thousands of very, very high-paying jobs. So it's a really, really interesting thing that's happening. Yeah. And so, so for our listeners, I mean, LNG is a trend you're going to watch for 2019, but it's going to be something that plays out probably over the next decade. So definitely something to keep your eyes on. And talking about, you know, our energy sources for the next several decades, let's talk a little bit about renewables. Let's talk about solar. Um, and solar is kind of in the news right now uh, for a couple reasons. First off, uh, there was a tariff put in place on solar panels by the United States earlier this year, as well as later on this year, we're expecting that the uh, government incentives and tax credits towards solar to begin starting to roll off the books. Currently, they're reimbursed a 30% tax credit based on your solar investment. So, with all these things, you know, going on, what are we looking at for solar over the next eighteen months or so? You know, it's it's kind of interesting. It's a it's a really dynamic space, uh, and it's a global growth market. It, I mean, we're looking at really, you know, probably multiple decades of, of growth uh, across the renewable space. Uh, as the technology gets better, as costs come down, energy storage costs come down, because um, that's kind of been the missing piece for for renewables, wind and solar anyway, to really be like a real permanent solution in terms of like the base load. 
But if you look at what's going on right now, um, you know, last year there was a massive increase in distributed solar around the world, um, primarily because China spent like five times more than they did. And distributed solar is uh, essentially anything that's a you know a residential rooftop or a commercial, you know, a, a private business that does solar versus utility which it's part of the grid and it's they're selling that power um, versus distributed is basically you're consuming it, you're buying the, the solar and then you're consuming it. Um, but what's, you know, so this this year in the U.S., I think we're probably going to finish the year down 17 or 18 percent in um, distributed solar versus last year because of the 30 percent tariffs on solar panels imported into the United States. And that was kind of baked into the expectations for this year um, for the U.S., but then on a global basis, um, kind of somewhat unexpectedly um, earlier, you know, a couple months ago, China uh, essentially ended this uh, incentive program they were doing, and it's created this massive overcapacity that's kind of shocked, you know, shocked the market. And I think it's 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 the end result should be relatively good for consumers because it's going to drive prices down because of the overcapacity. But it's just it's a little bit created some uncertainty, you know, in terms of 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 the panel makers, you know, kind of how things are going to going to go. Um, one that I like, I think it's interesting to look at right now, um, is um, SunPower. It's a big solar panel maker, and they finally got um, the uh, administration to give them an exemption from their panels uh, being, you know, imported into the U.S. because of a little bit of a difference in their technology. And they generally partner with like small uh, panel installers. They don't have like a big, you know, big. Um, you know, like uh, Sunrun or any of those guys that, you know, they sell through small independents. So this immediately gives them a big cost advantage. And it's I think there's a really good opportunity for them to, to take a lot of market share in the U.S. residential section over, over the next year. Uh, in terms of the bigger trends over the next year and a half or so, um, you think about wind, you think about battery storage. Battery storage technology is getting better. The costs are coming down as the manufacturing scale is growing and, you know, just that scale is driving down the costs. But you know, kind of where we are in the in the cycle, because those are big, you know, those are big utility scale projects. Um, I don't think there's really a lot of huge upside for for next year because we kind of already know what's going to get spent. Um, so I think it's just kind of a go forward year, and there's going to be a lot of you know dynamic changes with the solar the the panel makers. But I think sun um, sun power is the one that definitely has a lot of a lot of upside for the next you know year and a half or so. Sure. You know, Tyler, we were talking about earlier, you know, that these renewables and solar in particular, among the energy markets, everything over the long term looks like it's going to decline. We, we can speculate about how quickly the decline is, but these, this renewable space is something that is a secular growth trend. Do you want to kind of pull that thread a little bit and talk to our listeners about that? Well, it's one of the things that makes renewable investing so appealing, but yet so challenging at the same time. So if you look at the long-term trends of renewable energy, it's hard not to, you know, have your eyeballs turn to money signs looking at the total addressable market that we you have over the next 40, 50 years, if that is the kind of investment horizon that you have. However, as Jason just articulated, there are so many things that are happening over these short-term um, shorter term like cycles over 18 months, one year, you know, between tariffs and all these other things that kind of basically throw a roundhouse at the at the market that it's really, really hard to stay invested in it because it is so volatile. Yeah, there's there's one ETF that's kind of 
the vehicle if you just want to invest in solar. And over the past three or four years, it's been a terrible investment. I think it's underperformed the market by like 100%, and it's lost money for investors. So it's you really have to understand the industry and, and know where to invest or, or, be, or have a high risk tolerance at least. Because right. you're going to go through these phases of oversupply, undersupply, and it's going to happen incredibly quickly. And so it it's certainly an, uh, an industry, at least in my view, where you really have to um, avoid the news cycle because you will very easily get caught up in uh, probably enter, entering at a very bad point uh, and make it difficult for you to stay invested in it after you know six months later when everything seems to drop so quickly. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I like um, company like Brookfield Renewable because they have a total long-term mindset, um, and they're in it for to make money. Um, looking at it from the economics of the project, like they buy projects they know are going to make money. They buy, you know, they they do it on investment grade credit, and so they've got a very sustainable business. They've been at it um, doing with uh, hydro for years and years and years. Now they're getting into solar and wind and. I really like how they're going about it. They see it as a ten trillion dollar market as we replace oil and natural gas with renewables over the years. So if you look at it from that big picture and you go with companies that know how to make money in the space, like a Brookfield, I think that's a good way to go about it. Yeah, I think in terms of the kind of investor you are, if 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 you're interested in investing in in solar and wind and re- renewables in general, but you just want to get a good solid return, you have a relatively low risk tolerance. The yield codes are, are kind of the way to go, and I agree with you on pretty much any of the guys that are associated with Brookfield Asset Management. So you've got Brookfield Renewables, now you have Terraform Power, um, you get a solid yield, and, and the economics. And I think the interesting thing is if you look at what they've done, they've made a big move into this space only very recently as the economics have gotten to the point where you're looking at cost parity yeah. with with uh, fossil fuels. So I, you know, I think that's 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 a I think that tells you all you need to know about you know how you make money. And they're really looking at it from the economic standpoint. They said it's it's slowly shifted away from the taxes being mm-hmm. the sole driver to the economics being the sole right. driver. And right. is that and that appeals to them and they're able to to look at projects and say, Hey, we can make a ten percent return on this. This is a good, you know, investment. So I, I like the way they're going about it. Right. Yeah. One more thing quickly, just to make sure investors understand everything we're talking about here. Can you talk about the yield co Distinction versus other other operators in the space, kind of yeah. how, how those different things break out for investors. Yeah, I, I can give a, a brief overview. And if anybody that this is Jason, if anybody that follows my writing, um, keep your eyes out in the next few weeks. There's going to be a, a, a I don't know maybe four thousand word <laughs> article that breaks this down with a lot more detail. But essentially, you have manufacturers, you have companies that focus on the the solar modules and solar cells. You have companies that manufacture. The you know individual components uh, like uh, the power converters and you know and that sort of thing power inverters that sort of thing, and then you have installers in in the U.S. Uh, companies uh, like Sunrun, Vivint Solar that that actually put the panels on your roof or they do the commercial installs. Um, they have different ways that they can monetize that, just selling the equipment to you, and then they service. So they have some potential for revenue streams, and then you have the power producers, the yield co's. These are the companies that uh, invest in or acquire the more utility scale projects. So they make a living selling power. You know, they're more like a utility. So kind of the idea as an investor, the way to think about it is if you're again, if you're look if you're looking for income and a stable investment, look on the at the yield co side of things. All of the others, you know, there could be some value opportunity. Um, 
you have to understand how to value these businesses, which that's something that can get a little complex. But it, those the, the other sectors really all you have to have a higher tolerance for risk, and accept the fact that you may invest you know in 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 a company that might look great and then could struggle. But there's a tremendous upside uh, for the companies that have the right technology. Um, so that's you know that's kind of how you know kind of how it's broken out. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know, going away. You know, we've talked about the, these these big trends for 2019. I'm going to put you guys on the spot here for next year in the energy space. If each one of you had to pick a favorite stock for 2019, hit me with it. I'll go first because I've actually already mentioned it. Um, I am Ill- illogically bear- uh, bullish on Tellurian. Uh, it's a the LNG export uh, exporter. Uh, on the beginning of next year, 2019, they're going to get the uh, regulatory uh, final approval. If they obtain it, it'll be right around January. And if they do that, then they can make their final investment decision within, what is it now, like the next three months. And I think if that happens and they start, you start to see progress on the development, it's going to be like one of those major catalysts for the company that kind of gives them the green light to realize what they want to do. I know they say insanity is saying the same thing over and over again, but I'm going to Kinder Morgan. <laughs> I knew it. Because it's just so cheap. Um, they've done everything that you could possibly ask them to do. You know, they've gotten rid of their risky project in Canada. They've cut their debt well below um, what investors were worried about. They're going to get a credit rating upgrade. They're getting new projects. They're good projects. Um, they're buying back stock. At some point, I think the market has to realize that Kinder Morgan's not the same Kinder Morgan. So, Kinder Morgan. I, I hope you're right. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to go with two just because I like to talk more than everybody else. Um, I, I, these are both going to be renewables. Um, on the on the little bit the lower risk the the kind of capturing the income but still having some really good upside. I'm going to say Terraform Power. Uh, it's a great yield. And over the past year, after uh, Brookfield Asset Management became its sponsor and uh, majority shareholder, it's a completely different. Uh, management team, they're, they're focused on the economics, like like Matt was saying. And and I think it's a great dividend growth uh, investment. Uh, that sh- I think it's probably going to beat the market for the long term. I just like where they're positioned right now. I think if you're looking for a stock with just really great upside over the next year, but you're willing to take on that risk, I'm going to go with uh, with SunPower. Very nice. Well, that's a very diverse diverse set of picks. Hopefully, hopefully give our investors something to keep track of over the next year. Um, Thank you guys so much for coming on. We'll have to do it again sometime when everybody's in town. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Great. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall, Tyler Crow, and Matt DeLalo, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.